You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and today I am joined by Dave Goulson, who actually was on the podcast, I think, about exactly this time last year. And Dave is a guy who has done so much, he'll tell you about himself, but his two books, Plants for Pollinators and The Gardening Jungle, are the things that I turn to kind of often when I'm traveling or whatever, I, t- I often take them with me and I just sort of refresh myself on the stories of the important plants that we need to grow and why. But of course, you'll know from your own gardens the plants that are really key and are most visited. And I, I think of it like I go and watch an opera and it's a bee opera and it's quite noisy it's quite balletic and it's very impressive. And I try and take five or ten minutes once flowers come out in the growing season to go and watch a bee, butterfly or possibly hoverfly opera. Anyway, Dave, you're extremely welcome and I'm so grateful for you coming on again. I wondered if you wouldn't mind starting with the story about the earwig, which is a an invertebrate that I feel people love to hate because it looks like a scorpion and it, it, it sort of scares a lot of people. And one of the questions I get asked most as a great daily enthusiast when I'm teaching is, how do I get rid of my earwigs? And I say, no, you mustn't get rid of your earwigs. You must use them to your benefit. Listen to what Dave Goulson tells you about earwigs. So will you start us off on that, Dave? <laughs> yeah, I love an earwig. So I, where do I start talking about earwigs? People think of them as pests, and often, actually, if you go and go to a garden centre and look on the bottles of, you know, bug clear and all these other insecticides on the shelves, there'll be pictures of the different insects that you might want to be killing with your insecticide, and often there's a picture of an earwig on there. Yeah, and people do regard them as pests, and they—it's true—they do nibble blossoms a bit and bruised fruits, soft fruit that you'll find earwigs feeding on them, but only if they're already damaged, usually. And actually, what people don't realize is they're hugely important as biocontrol agents. They're our friends. They, they, their favorite food is, is not flower petals or, or fruit. It's actually small insects, aphids in particular. They love to eat. And they're nocturnal. They, at night, they, they run up tree trunks, particularly apple trees and fruit trees, and spend the night feasting on all the uh, aphids and uh, whatnot. Uh, white fly and so on in the in the canopy, and then mm. go down again in the in the early morning to to spend the day hiding out in a in a crevice. And there was some, some few years ago now uh, study done that showed that um, a healthy earwig population in an apple orchard uh, does the same amount of pest control as if the farmer were to spray three times with insecticide. That's amazing. Uh, so they're saving him loads of money if he just just look after these little creatures instead of killing them. They'll, you know, they, we get huge benefits. Well, I remember you telling me that, and I love that story so much. And so it then changed my gardening pattern because I'm ashamed to say, you know, before I met you, so maybe 10 years ago, we used to, through our dahlia patch, we would put those bamboo canes or hazel posts or whatever with an upside down flower pot full of straw, which is a classic sort of allotment ploy for getting rid of earwigs because the earwigs, as you say in the daytime, 
I find it all too hot. And so they go and nestle in the, in the, in the straw in the nest. And I used to take those off. And I'm ashamed to say that we used to burn the straw because I was trying to get oh. rid of the earwig. I know. I know. Isn't that dreadful? So, but the, actually, those gadgets are really useful because yes. you, you can, I, I've made a, a YouTube video about how to make a, an earwig hotel yeah. and put them by your dahlias for a few days, yes. get all the earwigs inside and then move them next to your fruit trees. And, you know, everyone's happy. Exactly. Well, what we did this year is we put them, we had a bit of a white fly attack on our tomatoes. So we, we put, we made our earwig nests and we carefully gathered up all the straw with the earwigs in and put them as a carpet, as a mulch below our tomato plants. And sure enough, I mean, I wish I could have got a slow-mo camera, but sure enough, over the next week or two, the aphid problem disappeared. So good old earwigs were our absolute friends. And I'm deeply ashamed and sort of feel utterly, utterly vandalistic and terrible that I ever wanted to squash an earwig because now I know that, that I, I want the opposite and I want to build up the population. So now if we get an earwig problem with the dahlias and if we don't have an aphid problem, I just take them down to the compost heap and try and build up their population down there. So, well, I mean, I'd love actually to just do a whole program on celebrating the pests everybody loves to hate, but I think maybe we should get to the main subject of this podcast, which is the really 12 best plants for pollinators. And I, I sort of somehow feel sometimes people think, oh, not again. But it's just coming to the end of the year. It's the time that we should really, you know, pressing the reset button of our gardening techniques. And I'm not going to stop banging the drum for the pollinator because they're more under siege than ever, ever, ever before. And with Brexit and leaving the control of the EU and the whole issue with spraying <sighs> oilseed rape, which I can hardly bear to go into, but we really need to use our gardens to be sanctuaries more than ever in 2023. And so I wondered if you would just, or between us, we can draw together the 12 must-have plants in any garden if you want to look after your pollinators. So you you go for number one. Oh, uh, it is so hard, isn't it? Because there are a lot more than 12 one could talk about. Uh, I'm going to go number one today. And it's not, well, you don't always get the same answer, I'm afraid. But marjoram. Um, Excellent. I, I love marjoram. It's a na native plant, which is always good to grow natives whenever you can. Yeah. It flowers for ages. And it doesn't just feed bees. It attracts a whole range of insects. You get loads of hoverflies. I get lots of butterflies in, in my garden, um, particularly gatekeepers. I absolutely love marjoram. Oh. And you can use it in your cooking as well. Yeah, uh, of course. So wins all round. It's also a plant that grows really well in a pot. So if you haven't got a garden, you've just got a balcony or a roof terrace or something. It's something that you can, you can grow in, in a, any kind of container and it's pretty happy. And as a, as a lover of chalk, it's very drought resistant too, isn't it? So it's, you know, given the, the drought that we had in our summer in 2022, this year that's just coming to an end, it's a cracking plant for that. Do you have a particular variety or are you Oregonum vulgari, the, the, the straightforward I, I like to go for this simple, wild marjoram. Very good. Okay, well, that's a really good starter. I'm going to say that the most visited plant, definitely in this garden, by bees particularly, and by bumblebees more than any other bees, is part of the Allium family. And the Allium family in general are incredibly good for pollinators. But this one used to be called Nectoscordum bulgaricum. 
It's actually now called Allium bulgaricum, or sometimes also Allium sicilium, just to confuse us all. But it's the one, the Allium, that has a sort of candelabra of brownish, crimsonish, greenish flowers that will grow in shade as well as sun. It's a bit of a self-seeder, so some people don't like it because it will romp away a bit. But it has a tall stem, maybe um, 90 centimetres, and then this big candelabra of hanging bells. And they are absolutely continually knocked, visited for pollen and nectar by every sort of bumblebee that you can ever find in this garden. And I try and get a seat and go and, and watch the bumblebee ballet on those in May and June. And it's it's just, you, you just wouldn't believe it. I mean, there's a there's a hundred bumbles on a clump at, at any one time. It's, it's an absolutely extraordinary sight. So that would have to be, I mean, not that we're saying number one or anything, because as you say, there are just so many. And also it will grow in dappled shade. So I would say it's a cracking plant. Right. Ping pong ball back to you now. Yeah, well, hundred percent agree on the last one. I've I've Good. I've got some in the garden, and it's tough as well. It's it thrives in, and even when I forget to weed it, I've got some of it surviving in tussocks of grass, and it just pokes up and flowers every year. Anyway, moving on. Number three, I'm going to go for another native, actually, uh, Vipers bugloss, um, Echium vulgari. Lovely. Which uh, is just a gorgeous plant to look at. I mean, forget the bees for a minute. Um, it's a really nice, uh, it's a biennial. It's very easy to grow from seed. Mm. And it, if, you, if you've got a sunny, well-drained place, it'll happily just keep seeding itself and pop up every year. Mm. And it has these big spikes of kind of mauve, sort of blue and purpley flowers, slightly bicolored. Yeah. Um, and be, it just produces tons of nectar. Bees go absolutely mad for it. You get, a, a bit like with the allium, just clouds of bees flying around the bug loss and uh, yeah one of one of my favorites yeah and I, I love that I live near the coast here and one of the things I love to do in May and June is to go down to Dungeness and that whole shingle coast that we have on the Kent Sussex border here and Vipers Bugloss is incredible at that time of year and goes on quite late but the combination of that and sea kale and actually the wild wallflowers that you get down at Dungeness on the shingle and the sea holly as well. But you're right, the most glamorous of all is is the echium. And it forms quite decent-sized spikes, doesn't it? You know, it's, it's probably not a coincidence, actually, that Dungeness is one of the best places in Britain for rare bumblebees. Ah, I'm, sure, yes. I'm sure a lot of that is because there's so much viper's bugloss. Yeah, yeah, good. No, well, I, I, again, an absolute cracking variety. I couldn't agree more. So moving on more... Well, no, actually, sort of similar time. I love foxgloves for particularly the bees. And I remember when I made the Bees, Butterflies and Blooms program, we saw quite a lot of entomologists and bee experts. And um, we came to your lab, actually. We haven't even talked about your work. Perhaps we could finish with talking about that. But I remember somebody describing a foxglove as a high rise of cafes for bees, which is they can they can get in at the bottom layer and feast on that. And then they've just got to hop in the lift, but with their wings to the next layer up and then the next layer up and then the next layer up. And I love that idea. Whenever I see a foxglove, I think of it as a high rise of nectar cafes or nectar bars for all pollinators. But particularly the bees seem to go crazy for foxgloves. 
And it doesn't seem to matter whether it's the wild native sort of purply pink or the white or the soft pink like Sutton's apricot. So it's another biennial like the Echium, but really, really fabulous plant for pollinators. If, if you're a bumblebee nerd like me, you'll, you might spot that it's actually specifically long-tongued bumblebees that mostly visit foxgloves. Oh. There's a thing called the garden bumblebee and the common carder bumblebee, which are, both have an extra long tongues compared to most others and it's because then in a foxglove flower the, the nectar is protected by a load of stiff hairs inside the flower so oh. and you need a long tongue to reach past the hairs to get to the nectar oh so no one else can nick it before the long-tailed bee gets there exactly oh excellent excellent okay so that that maybe is our number four so what's our number five that's from you okay where should we go for this i i Moving abroad now, there's, okay. a, there's a bit of a more unusual plant that I only discovered two years ago, I think it was. Uh, Korean mint, which is actually an agastache, ah, agastache yes. rugosa. And it's really easy to grow. A lovely sort of grows up, I don't know, metre or so tall with purple spikes of flowers. And it, uh, absolutely loved by, by bees, particularly mm. bumblebees. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it seems like an, a really versatile plant. I've found it it's so easy to grow it doesn't seem to mind whether it's damp or dry or whatever and it sees itself a little bit but not not too much so yeah top tip i really like it. it's beautiful and the bees love it and i think uh, like all agastaches the flowers are edible and i actually think with the korean mint one which is why it's called that the leaves are also edible and very fragrant and we did a mint trial here actually this year and i used quite a lot of the korean mint just scattering over salads, but also in in some things like if I was making like Korean seafood rolls or something, they give you a really kind of tangy, rather kind of, you know, like in Japanese cooking, perilla is another leaf that gives you that. But yeah, uh, you would you would need to check that before you, you <laughs> but I'm pretty sure, <laughs> before you start eating them, everyone, but I'm pretty sure that you'll find that it's the variety that we used here quite a bit. Yeah, for eating as it is, not even for cooking in water. But it, it, it's right, all the agastaches here are just humming, humming with bees. And then I, I wonder if we should move on to maybe hoverflies next before we then we then finish with butterflies. But what, what are your hoverfly specials? Oh, oh, I mean, so hoverflies... And they do go to the margarine, we've already talked about, but they like, they're quite short-tongued. They like shallow flowers and big kind of dinner plate like flowers so actually i mean most people wouldn't probably encourage this in their garden but um hogweed is is really good for hoverflies ah. um, but if you want a, a, a more palatable alternative for most people fennel is the same family in fact is the carrot family that hogweed belongs to and fennel belongs to the umbellifers the the the, the, uh, the flowers of fennel um are really attractive to hoverflies and uh a whole bunch of other insects as well. Yeah, and I, and the next one for the list for me would be Ami Magus. Do you know that? So that's, in fact, I first discovered it's a florist flower, really. It's it's often called white dill as a cut flower. And it's it, dill, which is an Ethan graviolens, is also brilliant. I have never grown it myself, but... Uh... But Ami Magus is... Um, it's like a very domesticated form of hogweed, I guess. And the good thing about it is with hogweed, you have to be really careful because quite a lot of people 
have light sensitivity to hogweed and, and can get quite nasty burns from it, like you get from rue. So you have to be pretty wary of it. Whereas with Ami, it's a wonderful cut flower. It's a fantastic garden plant. And interestingly, we found this year we had lots of direct so seed trials of wildflower mixes down in our trials garden. I was walking around with our head gardener, Josie, here the other day, and we noticed that the Ami has self-sown into the grass which is amazing because you'd think the grass would be far too strong to, you know, it would outcompete the Ami. So we're going to actually try transplanting seedlings into our wildflower meadow. And even though it's definitely not a British native, it just seems to be happy as Larry in the quite open sward of our, of our grass here. So I love Ami in all ways. It's a wonderful garden plant. It's fantastic for pollinators, particularly hoverflies. It looks great in the vase and great in the garden, but also it's happy in grass. And that's another asset because uh, we can all have a bit of wild grass, can't we? So, well, not all, but <laughs> it's, it's a nice low maintenance bit of garden to have. Any other, any other hoverfly ones before we move on to butterfly and moths? Well, there's a, a classic late in the year, uh, ivy. Yes. Which yes. some hoverflies hibernate as adult flies. And of course, there are some butterflies like red admirals that hibernate as adults. And they all flock to the ivy because it's the last thing to flower in most most areas. And it, it flowers right from sort of September through. In fact, there's still a little bit of it in flower now, although it's been a really weird year. So that's not normal. But it's this autumn feast, which is just perfect for, for a whole range of insects to, to sort of feed up. Honeybees love it too for their last sort of fix of sugar before the, they have to hole up for the winter. And it's a real shame. Ivy is one of those plants that's often kind of um, picked on, you yeah, know, as uh, like the earwig, but in a plant form. <laughs> yes, indeed. And uh, people should be much more tolerant of ivy. It's a fantastic plant. Yeah, and uh, talking of which, I mean, I've completely lost count of our list, but the lawn daisy. I mean, that's brilliant for early pollinators, isn't it? The early emerging bumblebees. Yeah. Along with dandelions, of course, which are also out at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone's cup of tea, but... Uh, but a bit of garden rewilding is a very good thing. And then also for late, very much not rewilding, very much a garden plant. But I think the single and anemone-flowered dahlias are an absolute winner. And certainly with us here into October, well into October, even into November, if I go down, we've got a path here lined by two dahlias, one called Totally Tangerine, which is an anemone flowered. Do you know those? They're single, but they have a sort of, almost like a sort of sea anemone in the middle of the flower, which is why they're called anemone flowers. But anyway, Totally Tangerine and Blue Bayou. And whenever you walk down there, if the sun's out, there will be peacocks, red admirals, tortoiseshells. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary how many butterflies you get. And, you know, as I say, really Quite late in the year, there will still be particularly red admirals uh, visiting those. And I don't know, so I'd love you to explain, but it seems to me that butterflies need quite a stable landing pad. And I, I, this is my extrapolation, which is with their wings, they're quite unstable because they've got large surface area. And so they can't just sort of perch like a bumblebee can so easily on a smaller flower. So they need those bigger plateau flowers that gives them stability. Is that absolute rubbish? That's, I, I've never thought about that, actually. I mean, 
I, I don't know whether it's rubbish or not, honest <laughs> truth. I, uh, I do know, I mean, it's certainly a fact of the size of insects affects what flowers they'll land on. Right. I did some research years ago. I, I, one thing you notice if you look at bumblebees is they vary a lot in size, even within a species. Oh, do even they? Even bees from the same nest, you get little tiny ones and big fat ones. And they tend to visit different flowers, because, in part because small flowers with weak stems just can't support the weight of the biggest bumblebees. Yes, the whole lot falls over bend. on the ground and the bumblebee ends up, yeah, uh, which makes it really hard for the bees to feed. So the bigger the bee, the, the kind of sturdier the flower it tends to feed on. And that, that must also be true of butterflies, I guess. Yeah, makes sense, doesn't it? Makes sense. Well, I don't know where we are on our list, but I've certainly got a couple more that I want to mention, and I'm sure you probably do too. But my next one would probably be buddleys, which are a cliche, of course, for butterflies, and they're called the butterfly bush. But the good thing about buddleys is that there's been this recent trend in breeding to make them a bit more compact and longer flowering, and yet it doesn't seem to affect their nectar count. So we, we grow one here called Buzz Indigo and another one called Buzz Lavender. And we grow it in a pot, actually, and maybe that bonsai's it a bit, but it's they're pretty drought tolerant, as you'll see if you get the train from Hastings to London. The whole railway siding in July and August is full of buddleys, and they're not being watered by anyone then. But yeah, it, it, it's been a good development. Some plant breeding isn't always good, but I do think these more compact buddleys will mean that more of us can have them in our gardens. And they are, of course, absolutely supreme, aren't they, for July and August nectar? Yeah, got, I've got rather a lot. And I know they're invasive and, I, and some people suggest we shouldn't grow them because they escape into the wild. But to be honest, I'm not sure any more could escape into the wild. They've, they've already infested most places that are suitable for them, I suspect. Exactly. But, uh, yeah. But yeah, they're certainly beautiful and the, and the butterflies appreciate them. And queen bumblebees actually really, really like them for some reason. Oh, do they? And is it true, the thing, that if a plant is scented, it's scented because it's good? I mean, that indicates it might be good for pollinators because it's drawing in or not. Different flowers use different kind of ways to attract pollinators. You know, some, some invest more in big, colourful petals or elaborate flowers. It's kind of interesting that some flowers don't really bother with colourful petals. You know, ivy, we've already talked about, is a classic example where it doesn't make any effort to, to be visually attractive, and yet it still attracts loads of insects. Yeah. And it, of course, some plants focus more on scent, which yeah. bees in, in particular are very cued into. But it, it, it's noticeable, particularly moth-pollinated flowers tend to be the, those with the strongest scent because they're, yes. of course, if they're trying to attract things flying around in the dark, there's yes. no point in using pretty petals because they won't be able to see them. Yes. But a scent works better. And they tend to be white. Yes, yes. Uh, tobacco flowers are a classic example. The honeysuckle's another one that uh, yeah. beautiful night-scented. Um, if you've got scope to grow one of those up your house, then I'd highly recommend it. Very good. And yeah, I was going to mention grasses j just for moths. So I, I just remember we had a, a moth expert here who had a moth trap, but I remember him having this very gentle net that he just went through our long grass here when it was fully ripe and, and, and running to seed. And I just couldn't believe how many of these tiny little brown moths, I'm afraid I literally don't know what they were, that he collected in this very light, apparently undamaging net. And uh, it was sort of practically a flutter. And yet 
you know, I, I, I hadn't even known they were there, really. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And I think because obviously bees are big and sweet and fluffy and butterflies are beautiful. I mean, we don't take moths and wasps, of course, which are very incredibly useful pollinators and hoverflies. We, we don't take them close to our heart. But having habitats and, and areas of long grass are incredibly important for moths as well, aren't they? They are. And as you say, moths are really underappreciated. I, I run a little trap. It's actually my um, my youngest son's little moth trap. And uh, it's just extraordinary how how beautiful some of the moths that turn yeah. up are. And you, you can't believe they must all live in my garden, but you never see them unless you unless you put a trap out. Yeah. You know, yeah. we get elephant hawk moths every yeah. year, which are these beautiful sort of lime green and pink moths. Uh, great big beautiful gorgeous things and they must be around but you 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 almost never see one you could live your whole life without seeing one but, yeah but if you stick a trap out we we often get five or six in a night do you really um, and they're, so they're so there exciting. along with hundreds of other species which uh yeah it's yeah they're they're gorgeous creatures and it doesn't damage them does it i mean you can just they're attracted to the light and then you can release them the next day and so you're not you know i mean my dad was a great butterfly collector and he you know, I'm afraid he used to, you know, chloroform them and then... No, I, I, I've I, got to admit, I started collecting butterflies when I was a yeah. teenager. And uh, for a few years, I did exactly that, showing my age, but uh, uh, sticking pins through the poor things. But I learned a lot from it. I mean, David Attenborough also collected butterflies. Charles Darwin collected insects and stuck pins through them. Not that I'm comparing myself to either of those people, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it, 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 I, I think, unfortunately problems insects face as such that collecting them now is just not acceptable yeah uh, yeah but uh, there was a time when we naively did that kind of thing but uh, anyway the world has changed and the, the final family that i had on my list before we wrap up is salvias of course and so you mentioned the agastache and we talked about buddleias you know that these are the sort of classics but i find salvias here are still flowering in the garden in december and you think there aren't any insects about, but actually on a sort of sheltered, sunnyish day, which are pretty rare in December in this country, but I can never believe that there are still pollinators out there um, feasting on the salvias. So for length of flowering and, and late flowering, the salvia family has, has a lot to be said for it, I'd say. Yeah, completely agree. So I, 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 there's so many others I wanted yeah. to mention, and we just... 12 is not enough. No, do one more, Dave. And then I really want to hear about what work you're doing at the moment. I want you to tell us all what work before we before we finish. But what's your last for our... I, I have no idea how many we've done. I've got absolutely no idea. But one more from you. I, I, I've lost track too. And I, I, I mean, I could mention comfrey, which is brilliant, but I'll... And catmint, which is we haven't touched on, but amazing for bees. Yeah. But actually... To, I think it's important we should probably just mention flowering trees. Yes. Because good. people tend to think of herbaceous plants when they're thinking of plants planting for insects, for bees or whatever. But actually there's some fantastic flowering trees. I mean, uh, limes, of course, giant trees. But if you happen to have a, a vast garden, a lime tree is great. Mm. Cherries and, and fruit trees are great. But my kind of top tree would be uh, pussy willow. Mm. I got lots of, well, the names are all a bit flexible with willows, but I've got goat willow, Salix capria in my garden, which is often called pussy willow. Yeah. And these lovely yellow catkins in the spring, they just attract, it's a time of year when there's not much else 
flowering and you've got hungry bumblebees coming out of hibernation and butterflies and so on, and they absolutely flock to the willow trees. Great. Okay, well, I think that's plenty to be going on with. But just before you leave, will you, will you tell us what you're up to in the lab and also personally book-wise and anything? Yeah, um, uh, lots of different projects going on in the lab. Well, I'll tell you about one of them, which is I, I've got a, a PhD student who's trying to work out what the effects of, of heat waves are likely to be on bumblebees uh. and how we might mitigate those by growing the right kinds of plants that are drought tolerant and still able to produce nectar in the midst of obviously pretty topical this yeah. year when we had that incredible heat wave yeah and a lot of plants in the garden were looking pretty pretty limp um, but some obviously cope much better than others and still manage to keep producing nectar even oh, when wow. it, you know and we obviously there's host pipe bands as well so we're not supposed to be watering and yeah so planting the right plants that are going to be able to cope in the future with uh, the, the very likely ever more extreme heat waves we we are likely to get could turn out to be really important. Yeah, really important. Gosh, that's so interesting. Otherwise, I've just finished writing a, a children's insect encyclopedia, kind of, oh. well, sort of an encyclopedia. It's a, a picture book of weird and wonderful insects from around the world. It's a bit different to anything I've done before. Oh, fabulous. Uh, kind of where you started. Yeah, exactly. And I'm working on a, a new book on uh, food and farming and how, how do we how do we feed the world without destroying it basically as the human population grows which is a tad more serious but yes. a big subject great oh well thanks so much dave for joining us again or joining me again and i'd love you or your phd student to come back and report when when it's going to press about about the drought tolerant nectar forming plants in difficult circumstances what an incredibly pertinent subject and i also want to say have a very very happy christmas not just you and your family but to everybody and to all the listeners so uh, thank you for being with us for now jolly nearly two years and happy christmas thanks so much for listening to grow cookie to range and thank you so much today for teaching us i love all his stuff about earwigs well i love talking to him anyway Next week, I'm joined by Adam, my husband, Adam Nicholson, and we're going to talk about our New Year's resolutions for Perch Hill and maybe our personal New Year's resolutions. But the main thing I need to say now is have a really wonderful Christmas. Happy Christmas, everybody. And thank you so much for listening to all our podcasts. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.